Hey everybody, and welcome to Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. My name is Michael Bradley, I'm your host, and this is episode 33. Superman and Batman is a show where each episode, we look at a Superman and Batman story from throughout the years. The two characters have an association that dates back to the golden age of comics, and they've teamed in virtually every medium out there, from comics to radio serials to animation to the upcoming feature-length film. And here on the show, I try to cover a little bit of everything and every era. But for the most part, stories covered here are usually chosen at random and are mostly from the pages of World's Finest Comics, where the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight teamed up for more than 30 years. This episode, we are traveling back in time nearly 60 years to not just the early days of those team-ups, but the very early days of the Silver Age of comics for a look at World's Finest Comics number 90. The issue was released on or around July 23rd of 1957, only about a year after the release of Showcase number 4, with the first appearance of the Barry Allen Flash, which is considered by many to be the starting point of the Silver Age of Comics. The issue was edited by Jack Schiff, and it's got a September-October 1957 cover date, and 32 pages for the price of 10 whole cents. Our cover is by Kurt Swan and Ray Burnley, and it shows Superman, Batman, and Robin inside the Batcave. Superman uses his X-ray vision to peer outside, where he sees Batwoman hovering in the sky and using her X-ray vision to look inside the cave. Great Scott, Superman exclaims. She's using her X-ray vision to find out the location of the Batcave. Now, I don't know a whole lot about Batwoman, but I have read enough Superman comics to know that Superman shouldn't be at all surprised about this. After all, he's got Lois Lane. And if she gained X-ray vision and a strange obsession with Batman, I'm pretty sure that this is exactly how she'd spend her time. But anyway, in all seriousness, it's a nice cover. Um, All the characters look great, and the colors really make it pop. I'm not sure it would make me grab the issue off the spinner rack, but there's a nice little mystery, and it's, it's drawn well, as you'd expect from, you know, Kurt Swan. And also... For readers of the time, there also might have been a little mystery about who Batwoman is. Uh, This was the character's only third appearance, and it was her first outside of Batman's own titles. So, you know, if you were reading World's Finest Comics for Superman, or if you were uh, predominantly a Superman fan, you know, there might have been many readers who were completely unfamiliar with, with Batwoman at all. But turning inside we get our 12-page story, which was written by Edmund Hamilton and illustrated by Dick Sprang and Stan Kay, all veterans to not just Superman and Batman, but listeners of this podcast as well. Batman and Robin, the dynamic duo of Gotham City, and Superman, the mighty Man of Steel of Metropolis, have often joined forces. But now, This tremendous trio faces an unprecedented situation when that glamorous girl detective, the Batwoman, sets out to learn their greatest secret. For a strange chain of events gives her superpowers, and they find themselves matched against the Super Batwoman. 
Our story begins on the streets of Metropolis, where Clark Kent's superhearing picks up an alarm coming from Metropolis Prison. Speeding to the scene, Superman meets with the Warden, who tells him that Elton Craig has escaped. Craig is a ruthless crook put away by Superman and Batman in a previous issue of World's Finest Comics. Now, we haven't covered that issue here yet, but all you need to know is that Craig has hidden a pill made by Jor-El that will give someone superpowers like Superman's for 24 hours. Obviously, a superpowered criminal would be a bad thing, so Superman flies out to search Craig's former hideout for clues. Meanwhile, at Stately Wayne Manor, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson hear a news report about Craig's escape and speed out in the Batmobile to do their own investigation as Batman and Robin. And meanwhile, you're at what is no doubt a slightly less stately Kane Manor, Kathy Kane hears the report herself, and despite being forbidden by Batman from being a superhero, decides to suit up and lend a hand to show Batman what she can do as Batwoman. As the four heroes arrive at Craig's former hideout, Superman and Batman put the entire search for the criminal fugitive who potentially has the powers of Superman on hold in order to tell Batwoman to stop trying to help and just be a good little girl and go on home. Superheroin is way too dangerous for a woman, after all. Ten-year-old boys in spandex are obviously much more qualified and much better allies. Knowing the men must be right because they're men and therefore smarter, Batwoman agrees to go home. But <laughs> you know how women can be, always getting into trouble. On her way home, Batwoman passes by an abandoned chemical factory. Knowing the lead tanks in the factory would be a great place to hide something from Superman's X-ray vision, Batwoman investigates and finds Craig pulling the pill from one of the tanks. Leaping into action, Batwoman grabs the capsule and unable to get past Craig because, remember, she's just a girl and he's a big strong man, decides her only option to make sure Craig doesn't get the pill is to take it herself. Swallowing the pill, Batwoman uses her new powers to quickly capture Craig and fly him back to prison. Rejoining Superman and Batman, she explains what happened and about her new abilities. Batman thanks Batwoman for the help, and by thanks, I mean he demeans her and tells her that superpowers are far too dangerous, and that she should just go on home and stay quiet until the powers fade. Because remember, superheroin is way too dangerous for a woman. Even a superpowered woman. It's much better to leave that kind of stuff to the ten-year-old powerless boys in spandex. Tired of being bossed around, Batwoman shows how responsible she is with her newfound powers by trying to use her X-ray vision to peer beneath the dynamic duo's masks and reveal their identities. But, being men and therefore obviously smarter than Batwoman, the dynamic duo has lined their masks with lead, thus preventing her from uncovering their secret. Frustrated, Batwoman flies off, vowing to stop at nothing, except when the male heroes are on a mission, to uncover who they really are. The world's finest heroes head back to their respective cities, and Batman and Robin attempt to prevent Batwoman from following them back to the Batcave. Unfortunately, their shenanigans are side-railed by a fire in a downtown high-rise. Batwoman also springs into action, extinguishing the blaze, and while she's off doing that too-dangerous-for-a-girl superhero and stuff, Batman and Robin use the distraction to make a getaway and save their own identities. Not giving up, Batwoman conducts an hours-long search finally locating Batman and Robin in a cave beneath the mansion. 
Batwoman brags that she knows their identities and flies off to Metropolis to discover Superman's before her powers wear off. Batman and Robin follow, hoping to help the Man of Steel protect his biggest secret. In Metropolis, Clark gets word of an avalanche and flies off to help as Superman. Meeting Batwoman in midair, the two battle the avalanche together, with Superman happy to have the help, even though, remember, superheroine is way too dangerous for a woman. Once the crisis is averted, Batwoman continues to follow the Man of Steel. Superman tries to scare her away by diving into a lightning storm and standing in a bomb-testing range and flying over Niagara Falls, but nothing seems to work until Superman lights on another idea. Soon arriving back in Metropolis, Superman casually strolls into a condemned building. A mighty feat, which successfully frightens Batwoman, because <laughs> abandoned houses have mice, and you all know women, even superpowered women, are afraid of mice. <sighs> so, Batwoman again follows Superman once he leaves the scary house. But finally tired of it all, Superman berates Batwoman, saying she's already lost because he can just wait until her powers fade. But Batwoman responds that it's Superman who is lost. Her plan all along has been to keep Superman away from Metropolis. She saw the block where Superman came from before the avalanche, and now, once she goes to every office and finds out who's missing an employee, she'll know Superman's secret identity. Unfortunately, as Batwoman learns during her search, none of the offices are missing any employees, including Clark Kent at the Daily Planet. And Batwoman leaps out a window to recheck all the offices. But at that exact moment, she faints and her powers fade away, causing her to be rescued by Superman. And with Clark Kent's presence no longer needed, Batman pulls off a disguise, revealing that he impersonated Clark Kent to help his friend maintain a secret identity. As Batwoman revives, she admits defeat, but says at least she learned Batman's identity. Unfortunately, showing once more that she's not as smart as the big strong male heroes, Batman reveals the cave she found was actually a fake Batcave dug by Batman before he left Gotham City for the sole purpose of throwing Batwoman off the trail even though she didn't have superpowers then, nor did Batman have any reason to suspect that she would gain them. Defeated at every turn, Batwoman finally concedes that she is but a mere girl, conceding the big strong Batman was right, and says she'll go home and never be Batwoman again. But Batman responds, saying that they think she's one, and that her courage and cleverness have convinced them that she should be allowed to be the Batwoman after all, even if superheroine is way too dangerous for a woman. The end. Wow. I'm not sure how to talk about the story here. Um, I've read enough Weisinger era Superman stories and Stan Lee Marvel books from the 60s and just comics in general to know that comics from this time, this time period, I should say, were not the most let's say, empowering for female characters. But this one was really bad. Uh, short of having Batwoman sit around for a few panels and pine for the coming day when she can marry the big strong man, I'm coming up with a few ideas about how they could have made this more male chauvinist. Unless you think I was wildly exaggerating for comedic effect. And okay, I, I did a little bit. 
you know, they don't hammer the too dangerous for a girl bit quite as hard as I did. But the entire conflict here comes from Batwoman not being, air quotes, good enough only because she's a woman. She can't help them find Craig because she's a woman. She can't use superpowers because she's a woman. They outsmart her with the leadline cowls because she's a woman. Mice scare her, say it with me, because she's a woman. I just, I can't imagine what was going on in the minds of, of Edmund Hamilton and Jack Schiff when this one came together. It's a fun premise with Batwoman getting powers and acting as a foil for Superman and Batman, but it just smacks of what is seen as the stereotypical, you know, and cliche to a certain extent, Lois Lane story, where Superman has to spend the entire tale tricking Lois to keep her from finding out Clark Kent and Superman are the same person. And even worse, beyond Superman's and Batman's treatment of Batwoman in the story, the story itself doesn't let Batwoman have a strong showing as she's repeatedly put in the spots that make her look inferior. She's the last to hear about Craig's jailbreak, excuse me, jailbreak, and thus the last to arrive on the scene. She actually does find Craig before the male heroes, but he traps her, which forces her to take the pill and puts her in an even bigger fix. She successfully outsmarts Superman, but Batman shows her up by thinking of the exact same plan, and then in the end, she loses her powers at the worst possible time, which causes her to be to need to be saved by the big strong male hero. It's just... <sighs> I don't want to say bad, because with a couple of minor points, it's not a poorly written story. Um, Structure-wise, and, you know, the, the, the plot and characterization... Not the characterization, but the plot and, you know, the, the plot twist, even. It's not bad. It's just a very regrettable story in regards to uh, its its approach to women and, and how Batwoman is treated. Um, but enough about that. I, I don't want to sit here for you know 15 minutes and bang on about how bad the story was, or was. So let's talk about the strong points. As I said, it's a fun premise. Strip out all the male chauvinism, and while that doesn't leave much of a story left... You know, this one brought me a lot of joy, and it had that fun, lighthearted dynamism that's often found in this era of books. I liked that they referenced um, a previous story. There's no footnote, which actually kind of surprised me, but the story referenced is The Reversed Heroes from World's Finest Comics number 87. And we'll likely cover that on the show eventually, so I won't spoil it. But what I found most interesting is that that story is credited to Bill Finger. Now, direct references to previous stories were fairly rare at this time period, and even more rare was for a writer to pick up a one-off character that was used in another writer's story. So I I just found that to be really, really interesting. Um, Early in the story, we get a flashback to Jor-El and Laura placing baby Kal-El in the rocket, which was nice to see. I always like seeing flashbacks and other artists' takes on the origin, um, especially in this era. You know, today, I, to a certain extent, I think we've become oversaturated with the origin because we've just seen it uh, in, in so many contexts and, and so many 
different tellings of it in the past, let's say, five years or even the past decade, really. But looking back at at this era of comics, the 1957 era, you know, it, when it wasn't retold and retold and retold, um, and it was still... I, I would say it was new, because at this point in Superman's, you know, uh, publishing history, they were just starting to deal more with Krypton and, and work in the origin of stories and, and that kind of thing more often. So, so but anyway, it's, it's, it's always interesting to see, you know, different takes on it, especially in the, this, uh, this early era. Oddly, Lara is wearing a headband in this one, which I don't know that I've ever seen that before. So that was interesting. But on a, on a related note, as far as the art is concerned, perhaps the strongest part of the story is the art. Um, I've sung the praises of Dick Sprang on previous episodes, and this one is really no different at all. Um, all the characters look great. He's got these dynamic layouts. It, it's clear that he's not cutting corners or scrimping, and if he is cutting corners and scrimping, then, you know... All the more praise because he is saving himself time and still putting out some really, really great-looking work. Uh, but the amount of detail that he puts into some of these panels is just really impressive. When there's a shot from the sky, there are buildings and uh, fields and just actual landscapes below them. In the sequence with Superman and Batwoman uh, stopping the avalanche, there's a one one particular page has a third of a page panel of the two of them smashing boulders and you can see the dust and the particles and the the boulder remnants as they smash them and then below they're you know they're in the they're in the uh they're in the air smashing boulders as as they come off the mountain but then below them you can see clouds and trees and buildings from the the city that's below them it's just it's just wonderful and even given all that their costumes have details it's it's just beautiful. Like I said, he's he's clearly not um, cutting any corners, and if he is, then it, it makes it all the more amazing. Um, but it's just very detailed, you know, the whole story, not just that particular sequence. It's all very detailed, all without losing the characters or becoming distracting to where you can't follow the story. So, altogether... <laughs> You know, if you can get past the too dangerous for a girl stuff, or at least stomach it for 12 pages, depending on how you want to look at it, this one has great art and a fun premise. And, you know, I hate to be too down on it, because taken within the context of the time, it doesn't make it right, but it does become easier to understand. And I don't think for a second that anyone involved with the the book set out to write something that was cruel or, you know, intentionally disparaged women. Um, They were just out to write a fun adventure story. And then when you mix that with the mentality of the time, well, you get this. Uh, But like I said, it's a fun idea, so read it, relish the art, just don't take it too seriously. Uh, But that said, it's time for a break, and then we'll come back for a look at the rest of the issue and what else was on the stands. It was the dawn of the third age of comics, 15 years after the rise of the Comics Code Authority. The Bronze Age was a dream given form. Its goal? To portray superheroes in a way that was socially relevant by tackling real-world issues. 
It's a catch-all, a place to explore monsters, demons, gunslingers, gods, and superheroes alike. Writers and artists wrapped in house styles of sophisticated realism, creating the stuff of legends. There is no assurance of quality, but it's our last best hope for comic books. This is a retrospective of the true golden age. The year is 1970. The name of the podcast, Uncovering the Bronze Age. Tune into our feed for regular content at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. Also home to the Quarterbin Podcast and the Short Box Showcase. Hi, my name is Teresa. And my name is Rebecca. Do you like Supergirl? We do too. And we're super excited to bring you a fan podcast devoted to the upcoming Supergirl TV series on CBS from Greg Berlanti and Ali Adler, starring Melissa Benoist as the Girl of Steel. Check in with us every week for news and discussion about the last daughter of Krypton. Supergirl Radio. Your source for all things Supergirl. If you'd like to read this but don't have the original issue... You can pick up a copy of World's Finest Comics number 161 from 1966, where it was reprinted. You can also find it in World's Finest Comics Archives, Volume 2, and Showcase Presents World's Finest, Volume 1. Uh, the latter of those being in black and white, as all the Showcase volumes are. Also, if you want to hear another podcaster's take on it, you can go all the way back to 2012, where Billy Hogan covered it as part of episode 225 of the Superman Fan Podcast. Uh, Billy puts together a great show, and I don't think it gets enough attention, so be sure to check out some or all of Billy's uh, many, many episodes. He's been doing the show for uh, six or seven years now, and he has amassed quite quite a, a catalog of episodes looking at Silver Age Superman stuff. Other features in this issue include a six-page Green Arrow story illustrated by George Papp entitled The Amazing Archer from Mars and a six-page Tomahawk story illustrated by Fred Ray entitled The Riddle of the Mystery Tracker. Ad-wise, there is really nothing of note. Um, Almost every ad in this issue is for mail-away junk like stamps and celebrity photos and packets of seeds. You know, stuff kids love. Or something. So we move on to one of my favorite parts of the show, and that's taking a trip in the time machine via Mike's Amazing World of Comics at mikesamazingworld.com for a look at what else was on the stands. And surprisingly, there's not just a whole lot to talk about. Um, Like I said, the issue that is generally seen as the beginning of the Silver Age of Comics came out about a year before this, but it took a little while uh, to really get fully into the Silver Age. The Superman titles were all under the stewardship of Mort Weisinger at this point, and elements that are now associated with the Silver Age were definitely creeping in and showing, but the books weren't fully entrenched into that iconic Silver Age feel yet. Um, It would take about another year, really, before that happened, and and really, it was kind of the same with the other books, too, because even though Barry Allen appeared, like I said, the year before, his ongoing wouldn't start until late 1958. And that's one of the things that makes pinpointing eras of comics a near impossibility. 
you can point out milestones in the transition, like the first appearance of Barry Allen or the first appearance of the uh, Fortress of Solitude, you know, with the giant key out front. But it's rarely ever a light switch or, or a definitive line in the sand. But as to the books themselves that came out, uh, first up is Action Comics number 232, which features the story of Superman Jr. And while I won't spoil the story inside, it has a great cover of Superman using his super breath to frost a pitcher of lemonade while on a camping trip with his, again, air quotes, son. I remember a few years ago, I found a Father's Day card with this art on the cover, so I bought it for my dad. Uh, He's not into Superman. He's probably never even read a Superman comic, but he knows I am, so it seemed appropriate. Adventure Comics number 240 has a story where Superboy is forced to run a battery of tests by a robot built by Jor-El. You're probably better off not asking. And let's see, Batman number 110. Uh, While it's not the cover feature, it has a story with a flashback telling how Alfred came to work for Bruce. Because at this time, Alfred wasn't the Wayne's family butler, but someone who came along well after Bruce was into his career as Batman. Um, also of note is that both this and Detective Comics number 247, which is also out this month, have covers by Kurt Swan, who did several covers for both titles in the late 1950s before uh, pretty much solidly working on Superman and only Superman or the Superman family stuff from there on out. And the last thing I see to mention is Showcase number 10. And this was the second of two consecutive issues of the title, focusing on Lois Lane, which were testing the waters for Lois's own book that would come along uh, in early 1958, and again is another one of those uh, milestones, so to speak, on the way to what is called the Silver Age. So I think that about does it for this episode. I know the show has been gone for a while, and I want to thank you all very, very much for your patience in the interim. Um, I'll be talking a little bit more about where the show has been and, and more importantly, where it's going to be going forward in two weeks when I dive into the listener feedback for an 80-page giant-sized mailbag episode. But I want to thank you all very much for joining me this time out. If you have questions, comments, or other feedback, be sure to write in. The email address is michael at greatcrypton.com. And you can also follow the show or reach out via Facebook and Twitter or leave comments at the website. And information for all of that is in the end tag, as always. Uh, be sure to write in because I really do love hearing from listeners and I want to get your thoughts on not just this story but all the stories I cover. Um, as I said, I'll be back in two weeks for a mailbag episode, so write in now and I can include your comments there. And be sure to keep using the hashtag of Pound Superbat Podcast when you post about the show on social medias. Remember, those who post on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr between now and August 15th using the hashtag and promoting the show's return or, or a new episode will be entered to win a copy of Showcase Presents World's Finest Volume 1, which is more than 500 pages of classic Silver Age team-ups between Superman and Batman. Uh, 
Or, as I said in the announcement episode, if you already have that book, we'll work out a a different prize so you don't feel left out of the competition. Uh, But every post gets an entry in the drawing, so post early and post often to not only, uh, you know, help get the word out about the show's return and build a buzz, but increase your chances of winning some really awesome comics in the meantime. Uh, But that's it for me. Thank you again very much for listening, and I will talk to you in two weeks. Goodbye. Listening to Superman and Batman, hosted by me, Michael Bradley. Feedback can be sent to Michael at GreatCrypton.com. I love hearing from listeners, so be sure to send your comments, questions, and other feedback, and I will likely read that on a future episode. Show notes, information, and back episodes can be found at GreatCrypton.com. Be sure to follow the show via Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe via iTunes or RSS feed that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe via iTunes, be sure to leave a review. Not only does it help others find the show, but I'd love to read that in a future episode as well. Superman and Batman is a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network, home to many great Superman-related podcasts. Be sure to pay them a visit at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Batman was created by Bob Kane and Bill Finger, and both characters are copyright DC Comics. I want to thank you again very much for listening and invite you to come back next time for another episode of Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Doubts Just a Girl from their 1995 breakthrough album Tragic Kingdom. If you'd like to get this song or the album, the best way to do that is to head on over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com banner. Pick up a CD, digital download, or pretty much anything else your heart desires, and Two True Freaks will get a little cut from every purchase. It won't cost you anything extra, but does help ensure a steady stream of fine Two True Freaks related podcasts.